Welcome to the Before We Go podcast featuring Dr. David Maines and his wife, noted author, Karen Maines. Our subject for today, the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. Here's David and Karen Maines. Hey friend, uh, thank you for joining us, us being David and Karen Maines, and we're ready if you are for another Before We Go visit. Uh, Karen, you've been extra busy this week. Uh, tell me a project you feel you got accomplished. Oh my goodness, i Trying to write out into the non-religious cultures. I've published 23 books within religious publishing, and I feel that there are many, many, many fine writers, younger ones who are coming up in the ranks and great theologians, and they don't need to hear my voice anymore. But I don't believe there are people who have a moral vision, who have are spiritually articulate in a way that the culture can accept it and the secular culture can accept it and be interested in it. So I have spent the week designing query letters. You have to have a query letter. You have to have a publishing bibliography. You have to have a cover letter. You have to have a sample chapter. You have to have a book proposal. And then um, uh, the book I'm proposing, um, I I sent two chapters because there's a little profile. You're sending this to... Well, I, first I have to find a literary agent, who a New York agent, who will take me on because a lot of those houses, publishing houses, just won't take anyone. Although with my credentials, they might be more open to it. But I think I need a literary agent to represent me. So this is a huge step of faith. It has been a huge job, and it's a huge step of faith. And I'm not even thinking about if they'll respond positively to me. I'm just thinking, whew, I got that done, because I feel like I'm being pushed to do this. Pushed by your husband? The Holy Spirit, no, my husband. (laughs) Not maybe meaning you. (laughs) No, not you, but just a nudge of the Holy Spirit that it's time now to do this work. So I did that, and then I have a... So it's uh, this is a big thing. It's a big thing. Can I say one more thing? And then I have uh, the title of a, a piece I wrote called Open Homophobia, The Fear of Opening Our Doors to Other People. And so I'm, I have that all together rewritten for a secular magazine, and I'm uh, sending that out to that magazine. It's not in the mail yet, but it's on its, it's on its way to getting to that place where it will be mailable. <laughs> I, I commend you. The, these are scary things for you. Uh, not so much anymore. Earlier they were, you know, I'm just doing this because I feel the Lord has pushed me, and he'll have to handle the opening doors on the other end if I get things back. It's just part of the process. I mean, get things back. That are negative. That, that were, yeah, Stephen King, someone was saying, I think it was our son Joel, said he had one big nail on his wall because when he sent out his first work, he got all, he had 50 refusals before oh someone picked him up. So when you're not known in a certain field, uh, particularly for a new writer, I'm not a new writer, but I am a new writer to those secular marketplaces. So we'll just see what happens. I'm not responsible for that. I'm only responsible to get it out the door. And what is something that you haven't gotten done yet, (laughs) but you're still working on it? Well, it's the change of seasons here in Chicago. So we're heading into out of summer, into fall. Beautiful weather, but there are gardening things that must be done um, during this change of season. And so that's kind of up to me, isn't it, hint, hint? I don't think that was fair. <laughs> to pull the gardening end of summer things all together. At least to, to get organize the to- it, yeah, to get and the to tools give me away. assignments. Yeah. Okay. Right. It's mm-hmm. that time of year. Those things are not done yet. So you're going to head into that this week? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. As you know, I have been up to my ears in a book project. 
I'm helping a friend with. It's not my book. Uh, what would you say, Karen, is the difference between line editing and conceptual uh, editing? Well, new writers don't understand that your editor <clears throat> is your best friend. I mean, they make you look good. But there are two kinds of editors. One who is what we call line ed- editor, and that person just checks grammar and um, spelling, spelling punctuation. and uh, punctuation. It's really what's on the page. Now, a conceptual editor, they're brilliant um, in that they have the overview on your book. And if you've said, if you knew, first of all, what you wanted to say, and if you've said what you wanted to say in the best way, so after meeting with a conceptual editor, you're probably you're very likely to go back and tear your book apart and put it all together. I had a brilliant editor work with me on one of my books. He literally came. I had the manuscript all written. It took me ten tries to even get going. It was a memoir. It's very difficult to write those. And so he sent me upstairs to write the first chapter, rewrite it because he didn't like it. Came downstairs. There were three piles on the table. The biggest pile, he said, was... This we're going to toss. <laughs> I remember this. That's a while back. This we're going to keep. Are you going to say who it was? No. Don't and this one we're going to keep, and we're going to shuffle them all in the last two piles all in together. Now, that's a conceptual editor because he was right. Um, there was a whole, you know, whole section that didn't belong in the memoir of my spiritual journey. And mm-hmm. so that's a conce- what a conceptual editor does. And, David, they're both valuable. In fact, and I don't think I'm doing either of those on this project. This uh-huh. is a close friend who is not American. Mm-hmm. He's from Asia. Mm-hmm. So he thinks differently, and he hasn't really given me a manuscript. He's given me a lot of notes. Kind he has of a, a passion for something he wants to say, and you are one of his dearest friends, and he's gone through very, very hard things in the last few years, and you understand what he's gone through so I would say it's a sympathetic co-write. <laughs> I wouldn't put myself on that high a level. I, but, but basically, it's a lot of work. Yeah, I mean, you're just... Uh, because I'm trying to say, in his words, uh, what he's feeling, and then I'm wanting to give this back to him so he now has a sequence he can follow that well, makes sense what to you're good at Western is writers. Developing a linear kind of thinking. Good, that's a good word, yes. You uh, always say, what is it about... And reduce it to a sentence, which we're all taught to do in journalism schools, yeah, but most of us don't. Him. But yeah. but you do do that. Mm-hmm. And then does everything that we write from that point on fit into that mm-hmm. purpose purpose sentence? So in a way, you're bringing that kind of mentality to his work. Yes, and I'm hoping that I don't destroy his voice. Uh, all that I'm saying is I'm looking for sympathy, I think, from people. <laughs> that I'm in a job that is a huge amount of work. And I'm doing it gladly, but I'm feeling uh, inadequate uh-huh. in a lot of ways. It's a big job. Now, having said all of that, the reason I wanted to go into that in detail is because now you know why I'm not always responding to your request that I do yard work. <laughs> Blame it on your friend, right? <laughs> yes, I can. <laughs> Have him get a crew in here. <laughs> anyway, that's It'll where, get done or it won't get done. It's just where it is. That's <laughs> where the mains are. That's where the mains are. At this moment in our saga. And I think that we'll leave things alone because I'm going to go back to an incredible uh, writer, St. John, who has taken what Jesus shared with him, which was overwhelming to him. Uh-huh. And uh, I think this was sort of a before-I-go project. 
For John? For John. How, you thought he was in his 90s? He's probably, yeah, he's an old man. An mm-hmm. old man, alone on the island, I mean, without, we're assuming without a fellowship of, of Christians on the mm-hmm. island of Patmos. Although, no computer. No computer. <laughs> <laughs> and he has this vision. And so I think it was a before I go kind of thing. He was impelled um, almost compulsively so to get this out, this this mm-hmm. vision he had received from the Lord. And that message has profound uh, implications for us as well. Okay, that's a pretty good setup, huh? We'll go to this next lecture. To understand the prophetic passages in Revelation that we will now look at, you have to imagine a future when, organizationally anyway, the church worldwide has been all but eliminated. In many respects, its influence is nil. That's because its public voice has been silenced. Sanctuaries have been destroyed, Bibles burned, and a staggering number of Christians have been slaughtered. Catholics, Protestants, Orthodox, even people in groups we today sometimes classify as cults. Around the world, most believers have gone into hiding. Just how many remain alive, no one really knows. Deception reigns supreme in the person of the Antichrist. There is also a false system of worship that has been introduced and has a massive global following. Whether this is something brand new or the elevation of a religion that has been around for a long time, I don't know. However, to fill people's longings for the supernatural, leaders of this elevated religious system are able to perform exceptional wonders. Whether genuine or fake, these mind-boggling miracles are impressive. Because of such marvelous acts, a certain spiritual authenticity is demonstrated. Even so, it's a religion of fear and bondage, not one of love and freedom. Let me just quickly insert, this is number eight in a series of twelve studies based on the New Testament book of Revelation. A new, and for the first time ever, worldwide empire has come into power. Its leader was introduced in Revelation chapter 13. Soon we learned about the religious underpinnings of this bestial dictator. Through lies, power grabs, military prowess, genocide, the whole globe has been brought under the tight control of this single ruling entity. Now the weapons of importance to the Antichrist are not so much ones of massive destruction as they are those that can control large numbers of people. Of course, control has been made easier by insisting that everyone receive the mark of the beast. Those refusing to comply with this order are in for a hard time just trying to survive. We got a glimpse of what this world of the future will be like, on a limited scale anyway, by observing what happened as ISIS took over large sections of the Middle East. There were killings, including crucifixions, beheadings, men set on fire in cages, and the demand for absolute obedience to what ISIS declared to be law. We saw the subjugation of women, the brainwashing of children, the total lack of religious freedoms, and so on, listen to me carefully. At this point, I am not saying that radical Islam is the future prophet or the second beast, only that ISIS acted in the same way that the unholy trio of revelation eventually will. 
I'm aware that messages like this can be upsetting. Thoughts of a future time when a truly evil power exercises absolute control over the world are frightening. Probably the younger you are, the more troubled your response. As I prepared my words for this visit, my request to the Lord was that when all was that instead you will assume an attitude that's not easily discouraged, intimidated, or defeated. Let me also point out that from chapter 15 on in Revelation, nothing good happens for the forces of evil. A turning point has been reached, and the ultimate outcome is obvious. So as we now come to a new main section of the book, let's take a quick look at the way I have outlined Revelation so far. The brief introduction was chapter 1, chapters 2 and 3, seven short sermons. Then it was Scroll of the Future, chapters 4 through 11. Subheadings under Scroll of the Future were Heavenly Worship, Seven Seals Opened, Word to the Martyrs, Time of the Trumpets, and then we came to the Unholy Trio, which is chapter 12 through 14. I believe the Time of the Trumpets... And the rise of the earthly power of the unholy trio, Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, are not sequential. In other words, one happens after the other. Rather, they overlap. And both occur during what we usually think of as the last days or the end times. And how pleased I am now to tell you that with today's assigned chapters, God will begin to show his great power. He is not distant and uninvolved. He cares. So we have a new main topic I'm calling Turning of the Tide. That goes from chapter 15 through verse 10 of 19, and the first subtitle is today's topic, Seven Bowls of Wrath, Revelation chapters 15 and 16. These seven bowls of God's wrath are also called the seven last plagues. Verse 1 of chapter 15 states that they are, quote, last because with them God's wrath is completed. Anyway, seven select angels are given golden bowls containing the wrath of God. Angels come up more in Revelation than in any other book of the Bible. As you probably noticed, there are seven angels in this chapter alone. The word angel means messenger, and this is probably the primary role they fill. Angels appear to exist in a dimension other than our own, yet they influence what goes on in our world. At critical times, they have also been known to make themselves visible to select human beings. Even though I have never encountered an angel, I believe in them. Mainly, that's because in the Gospels, Jesus not only repeatedly affirms their existence, but they play a significant role in his life. They appear often in the events surrounding his birth. Angels also minister to Jesus following his temptation in the wilderness. They strengthen him later in the Garden of Gethsemane. In the accounts of his resurrection, they are present once again. Revelation chapter 16, verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. Let me add, to emphasize a point, pour them on an earth that now, for the most part, has totally rejected God, has allowed countless believers to be slaughtered, 
has embraced the enemy in his vile ways and has made survival incredibly difficult for those who bravely refuse to accept the mark of the beast. This rotten world under the devil and two beasts have come to the place where it truly deserves whatever is in those bowls. The seven bowls that are now detailed one by one might on the surface remind us of the seven trumpets, except that these bowls are much more intense. They also have the added element of punishing Satan, who has always tried to frustrate God in his desires for this beautiful planet. So you could say that the seven bowls of wrath are the response of God to Satan's final efforts to oppose his divine rule. Also, be reminded that John is not describing a documentary he witnessed. It's a vision he had, or a dream-like revelation. Verse 2 of chapter 16. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly, painful sores broke out. Nobody likes ugly and painful sores breaking out on them, but who are the them? It says, Ugly and painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead man. And every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Back in Exodus, you recall how the waters of the Nile were turned to blood at the command of Moses. Scripture has Moses saying, The fish in the Nile will die, and the river will stink. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in the wooden buckets and stone jars. Scripture still. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink the water of the river. Verses 5 to 7. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, you who are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged. For they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. Angels are created beings who rank higher than humans with superior strength and intellect. So I believe we do well to pay attention to what they have to say. And here, the angel in charge of the waters is basically telling us that God is just to turn all the salt waters and the fresh waters into blood. The Antichrist and his henchmen, plus all those who support him in his evil agenda, will have shed the blood of countless of God's saints and prophets. Therefore, God is just in giving the enemy blood to drink as they deserve. Verse 8, the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was given power to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat. We already know the sun can be merciless. Here it appears its intensity has simply been turned up a few notches. And how do people respond? They cursed the name of God, who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. Power out! Has to be embarrassing. The mighty Antichrist's whole kingdom plunged into darkness. 
Men gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. Then Angel 6 empties his bowl of wrath, and we see the kings or leaders of the various languages or territories being tricked by the dragon, Satan, and his two beasts, the Antichrist and the false prophet, into gathering their people for battle against God. And the long-anticipated place of conflict is Armageddon. Verse 16. They gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Taken literally, this is a plain in Israel located between the Mediterranean Sea on the west and the Sea of Galilee on the east. A number of prominent Old Testament battles were fought there. Whether this is the actual site, where Armageddon is symbolic of where the final military struggle will be between the forces of good and evil again, I don't know. Also embedded in this text is a very quick Christ-like reminder Behold, I come like a thief. When the final bowl of wrath is emptied by angel seven, a loud voice from heaven, presumably God, says, It is done. It's followed by typical manifestations of his power, such as flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. In fact, no earthquake like it has ever occurred since man has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. Now, at verse 19, we have arrived at what will be the main topic of our next visit, cities, and more specifically, the great city that will be the seat of power of the forces of evil. If you were a first-century believer hearing this text read, the great city would have been Rome. If you are a Christ follower in the 21st century, That's going to be the capital city of the Antichrist, his power base, the place Satan operates out of with his twin puppets. To quote Revelation 17, verse 18, the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. In the next chapter, it's symbolically called the great whore, prostitute. There will be such a headquarters. It's inevitable. Where will it be? Beijing? Tehran? New York? Cairo? London? Rome once again? Jerusalem? Moscow? Washington, D.C.? Somewhere we have never heard of? A great capital city yet to be built? In the next chapter of Revelation 17, this place is also symbolically called Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. The bigger truth is that all great cities of the world, including my home city of Chicago, will be under the control of this single overlord. These urban seats of power around the world will help enforce his will, carry out his orders, govern surrounding territories, and punish any dissidents. That's just how it will be when the Antichrist, according to Revelation 13, verses 7 and 8, is given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. 
respect to verses 18 and 19 of Revelation 16, no earthquake like it has ever occurred since man has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. <laughs> There's nothing like a massive earthquake, the most powerful one that has ever occurred, to humble the Antichrist. The great city split into three parts and cities of the nations collapsed. Babylon was the great enemy of Old Testament Israel. But in Jewish Christian apocalyptic writings, Babylon became the symbolic name for Rome. For us in our study of Revelation, it is also the name of the future city of the Antichrist. At this point, we don't know the location of this new Babylon. What we do know is that it will be destroyed by a devastating act of God. Remember what Jesus said about Jerusalem in his Olivet Discourse? The time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Did that prophecy come true? You bet it did. So will this prophecy from Jesus to John to us in Revelation come true? Babylon number one, the enemy of the Jews in the Old Testament, fell. So did Babylon number two, Rome. And so will Babylon number three, even though we at this point don't even know its name or location. In more detail, the Roman Empire fell in the great imperial city. Rome was sacked repeatedly. That irrefutable fact tends to make me believe that the same will someday be true of the city of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. More about this city of the future next visit, and your assignment is to read Revelation chapters 17, 18, and verses 1 to 10 of 19. Again, that's chapters 17, 18, and verses 1 to 10 of Revelation chapter 19. Convinced they are on the winning side during the end times, informed Christians should assume an indomitable attitude knowing that even as pompous Rome was sacked and her empire destroyed, so God will also demolish the capital city of the Antichrist plus all her urban affiliates. So cities, these great monuments to human achievement, will all someday collapse in ruin. Each one will come tumbling down, and our God will create a new earth and a new holy city, the new Jerusalem, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Knowledge gives power. Which would you rather be? Uninformed and unconverted, but for a while able to get food and fuel and flights here and there, but find out too late after your city has fallen that you are numbered among the damned. Or would you say that a better choice would be found on the side of the informed who maybe have it rough for a while, even see your days ended prematurely. But in your heart and mind you know that for all eternity you will be with the Lord and all those who love him and all that for which he stands. I would say that a deep-seated conviction like this should make you indomitable in your faith, unshakable, Courageous, valiant, 
fearless, unconquerable, able to stand even in the worst of times. Oh, I thank God for revelation. It is a most encouraging message about who eventually wins the war between Christ and the Antichrist. I want to briefly go back to the opening paragraphs of chapter 15 of Revelation. We have here a heavenly picture of the martyrs who lived during the reign of the Antichrist and were killed by him. They are said to have been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name. The beast used his authority and power to have them killed, but they were the real victors in that they remained true to the Lord and are now being rewarded by living in his heavenly presence. And they are singing the song of Moses. So it's a song of deliverance from the domination of the first of the seven superpowers, ancient Egypt. When you read the words in verses 3 and 4, it's relatively easy to picture the Israelites having sung these lyrics as they escaped Pharaoh's army. Now, martyrs are singing the same words because of their escape from the Antichrist. A long, cherished tradition of the church is the singing of songs of victory. I want you to ask Jesus to put a song about victory in your heart this week. Maybe it will come to you right away. Then again, you might need to talk to a friend to get some suggestions or listen to Christian radio or whatever. But it would be sad if a whole week went by and you couldn't come up with something. There are so many such songs that have been written because, again, it's a long-cherished tradition of the church, this singing of victory songs of the Lamb. So that's your spiritual quest for between now and when we next get together. Personal short stories were a great gift given me by my Grandpa Ben. He left me with tales about his early days living in the Canadian province of Nova Scotia, or New Scotland. According to him, the Bay of Fundy area has the biggest tidal changes in the world, with the difference between high and low tide often nearing 50 feet. When the water was out, the local fishermen tied baited lines to stakes they had driven into the low mud flats. Then when the tide rushed back, fish would take the bait and get hooked. As soon as it went out again, these men would go down and check to see what they had caught. One of Grandpa's stories I still remember was about old man Shaw. He lived alone and rather liked it that way. He usually waited until the others had finished their rounds before checking his lines, but once Shaw got an even later start than normal, so he hurried to check them all before the tide rushed in again. What Shaw hadn't taken into consideration was a dense fog settling into the area right as he was gathering his catch. It descended so fast he became disoriented. Now he totally missed one of his stakes and actually tripped over the next one sprawling on the wet ground. He got up, regrouped, again putting his catch over his back, but now he was not sure what direction he was heading. 
He seemed to be walking quite a while, but getting nowhere. Should he alter his route? And how long did he have before the water returned in force? What will you do, young Master David? My grandfather asked. Here was this old man with a few good-sized fish hanging over his back, walking in thick fog to who knows where, had to make a decision should he remain independent, still keep to himself and try to solve this problem on his own, or holler for help. As a six-year-old sitting on my grandpa's big lap, as far as I was concerned, this was a no-brainer. I'd holler for help, I responded. But Shaw didn't have friends like you do, I was reminded. He kind of kept to himself, and people tended to leave him alone. So what do you think he did? I don't know, Grandpa. Come on, David, Grandpa prodded. Shaw's bewildered and frightened. He's all alone with his life being threatened. Tell him what to do. But I don't know what to tell. Help! Grandpa suddenly hollered. I almost fell off his lap. Never before I, I heard him yell like that. Shaw may be independent, but he wasn't stupid, Grandpa exclaimed. Help! Help! Grandpa Ben was even louder this time. Then, way off in the distance, a man heard Shaw's cry, knew what was happening. This stranger understood that someone was lost in the fog out in the mudflats, and the tide was soon to rush in. Here came the response from off in the distance. This time Grandpa's voice was just above a whisper. Help! Here! Help! Here! Just a little louder. And the two voices bounced back and forth, one from the flats of the bay and the other from somewhere up on the high banks. Help! Here! An old man Shaw ran and scrambled and yelled and stumbled and raced some more, the last of the way in water that was quickly coming into the area, faster now, leaving his fish behind, trusting the voice in the fog that eventually led him to safety. Well, he made it, young man. He sure did. What do you think of that? Grandpa Ben was a good storyteller. In Psalm 90, Moses writes, the length of our days is seventy years, or eighty, if we have the strength. Moses was an amazing man in more ways than one. The scriptures record, Moses was a hundred and twenty years old when he died, yet his eyes were not weak nor his strength gone. That's Deuteronomy 34.7. With me being eighty-two, Moses's Psalm has me in a precarious age. I'm already beyond the generally allotted 70 plus the 10-year extension if I, quote, have the strength. I doubt Wikipedia paid any attention to Psalm 90. Nevertheless, that Internet resource lists the life expectancy of white American males as 78. 
So wisdom would say that now is certainly an appropriate time for me to start thinking about what I want to pass on to those to whom I feel the closest. To those I love, I leave. The easy part was writing the will some years ago. What's more complicated is how to pass on certain strong convictions I have regarding scriptures I've been studying for many years now. I've preached on these matters when loved ones and friends were present, but, but I haven't taken the time to put my thoughts into concise form so they can be studied alongside the Bible passages. To be more specific, Revelation is a book in which I have spent countless hours. Though I don't understand all of it, I find it to be a text I dearly love, and I'm drawn to it again and again. I don't believe that history as we know it will continue on indefinitely. Instead, it is headed for an ultimate showdown between the forces of good and evil. This is the orthodox view of most Christians. One of the great truths of the book of Revelation is that God will emerge victorious. Another emphasis not taught that often is that the end times will be bloody ones for believers. In the Gospels, Jesus carefully prepared his disciples for his death and resurrection. John thirteen nineteen has our Lord in the upper room saying these words to the twelve, I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen you will believe that I am he. In similar fashion, in the final book of the Bible, Jesus thoughtfully informs his followers ahead of time about events related to the end of the world. The response this inside information calls for is one of unshakable loyalty, even under terrible persecution, because of faith regarding our Lord's final triumph and our joyous eternal future together. I don't believe Christ's intent in Revelation was to confuse and depress the elect, but to enlighten and encourage them. Even so, there is no indication in this book that believers will escape these troubling times. My own concise understanding of Revelation has now been told first to my extended family. This includes members in my generation as well as the age group of my four adult children and their spouses. The oldest of my nine grandchildren are in their twenties and at the age when they can grasp my thoughts. I hope the time will come when each of the others can one day hear and appreciate their grandfather's words also. I do not believe the basic thrusts of Revelation are all that mysterious or difficult to grasp. The key is to stick to the big-picture truths and avoid getting bogged down in details. The biggest fault I find with most books about the apocalypse is that they quickly overwhelm the reader with minutia. My goal is to stick to the big-picture truths. Revelation is not a mind-boggling puzzle to be solved only by scholars, but a relatively clear word from the Lord to be carefully heeded and most certainly by this present generation. My main reason for sharing my thoughts is that I see our world rapidly changing, and my children and grandchildren could someday face difficult situations I never experienced. I want them to know what I believe are some extremely important truths. 
I have a feeling there are many grandparents who are in a similar situation. There must also be uncles and aunts who are anxious in their thoughts for their nephews and nieces, even grandnephews and grandnieces. Our concern is that a day may come when those precious to us feel all alone and they're terribly confused by what's happening in their world. Events could make them anxious or intimidated, frightened and possibly even scared to death. Help me! They might cry out. That's when I want them to recall the faint words of someone older and biblically wiser saying, Here, this is the way. Help! I hear you. I know you can't see me, but I'm in a safe place. Remember what I told you. Follow my advice. You'll be all right. Help! Here. Hold dear to what Revelation says. Help! Here. Jesus loves you. Help! Here! You'll be all right. You've been listening to the Before We Go podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to rate, review, and share on Apple Podcasts or on whatever platform you listen. This podcast is copyright 2019 by Mainstay Ministries, Post Office Box 30, Wheaton, Illinois, 60189.